Meanwhile... Yeah, I was going to actually talk about vehicles because uh, we spoke with uh, Martin Newell. What is it you guys do? Is it your Max Max Headroom fans or something? Yeah. Uh, previously. And he was mentioning that uh, you had a vintage Morris and a Austin uh, yes. when you were living in the UK. And uh, yeah. what happened to those cars after you left? Uh, I sold the Morris. It was a 1923 Bullnose Morris. I sold that to somebody, uh, and uh, I, I, I still have the Austin. It's outside here now. That's so, so you had it uh, brought over. That's so cool. And that, that Austin, by the way... Uh, Martin may not have told you this. That little Austin cost me one shilling and eight pence. Seems a little low. Which was the cost of a pint of beer, which is all I paid. Martin for. didn't tell us that. Yes, it cost a pint of beer that car, and we drove it to Spain, all over the place, and now it's here. That's so cool. Well, Martin was a pretty cool kind of guy himself. I do love that. Two pots of lager and a packet of crisps, please. And that that Austin. It's a Max Headroom Mini. Hey, Maxi. Brought to you by 20 minutes into the future. It's a Max Headroom Mini. A Maxi. Enjoy. Welcome to 20 Minutes Into the Future, the podcast that is pro cleaners from Venus, and we vote. This week, we have a Maxi that uncovers a small tidbit from Martin Noel's book, The Greatest Living Englishman that indirectly mentions the relationship between Steve Roberts and Martin himself, as the former was the landlord to the latter. It all makes sense now. In fact, Martin Newell kindly reached out to us and introduced us to Steve Roberts, setting this podcast off in a much different direction than we intended, and for which we are very, very grateful. So, in the meantime, here's a little something at the intersection of Martin Newell and Steve Roberts. Perfect for one of our program's maxis. Martin was lovely, and of course, but Martin um, was an oddity in the village because he was the only um, truly self-promoting person anybody in this little village which we lived in, um, had ever met. And Martin was not embarrassed about selling himself. And people used to find that very disconcerting. I actually found it delightful because he really had this enormous creative urge in him and was hugely talented, I thought. So I, I was vastly enjoyed his company. Make yourself comfortable. So, you know, all, all of the, the uh, strange rumours about him, you know, I, I never actually saw any of that. He he actually lived in a house that I owned, um, in the back house. There were two little houses there, and he and and uh, his various ladies uh -huh. lived in uh, in there. Nice and cozy. Cozy sounds small. No, no, no unusual stories about Martin actually would tell you the truth. He's just unusual and a, a delight. And we couldn't agree more. He really is an absolute delight. And he does mention you in the second edition of his autobiography, The Greatest Living Englishman. Does he? Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he does. There's an anecdote about the first time he saw himself on television and he was at your house sitting on your couch with you. 
<laughs> oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. Announcer Mitch here. Heather will now read the selection in question. For the record, this is taken from Martin Newell's book, The Greatest Living Englishman. I sat with a two-liter bottle of cider in one hand and a roll-up in the other, watching the video screen in my landlord Steve's living room. Roger Maynard, then a news presenter at BBC East in Norwich, was interviewing a young man. The young man, in his twenties, was dressed almost entirely in black, his thin face appearing more gaunt for a surfeit of smeared mascara. He lurched uneasily in his seat as he fielded the interviewer's questions. Did he think, asked Roger Maynard, that a record whose subject matter mentioned unemployment and drugs was relevant as an educational aid for youngsters? The young man stared vacantly at the camera. Well, it's gotta be better than rock climbing and the Duke of Edinburgh Awards, ain't it? He slurred. Then he laughed, lurching almost out of his seat. Even I, by this time well numbed with cider, was slightly shocked as I watched the video recording of my first live TV appearance. Everyone apparently had seen it. The pub, so Steve said, had been abuzz with it earlier. Even an uncle of mine in distant Buckinghamshire had witnessed it. Shortly afterwards, during the course of a telephone conversation, he told me quietly that he thought I'd let myself down. It hadn't been the plan. Put a sharp black outfit together. A little bit rock and roll maybe, but smartish. It was on the train to the Norwich studio that I noticed my throat was swollen, my head ached, and I felt slightly otherworldly. The meet and greet person at the sea showed me into the green room, which they still had in those days, pointed to a large drinks cabinet, and gave me one of those, you know what to do, gestures. No sooner had the door closed than I'd sprung briskly up and mixed myself a whiskey mac. Then quickly, another. Still, no one came to collect me, so I had a third. I now felt confident, witty, erudite. Thus began my so-called f***ing TV career. A few days earlier, my mom had telephoned me at 7.30 a.m. and said, You're in the Daily Mail. They say that a Dolan drugs record written by a part-time washer-up has been sent out to hundreds of schools as an educational aid. And a Tory MP, Nick Budgen, has condemned you publicly. She sounded rather more excited than alarmed about it. On Radio 1, the DJ Dave Lee Travis was playing Young Jobless at lunchtimes. The record company informed me that my disc had been C-listed, which meant sporadic airplay. The drive-time DJ, Peter Powell, had played it too. Really, really. no right 
Fortnight or so, I'd be washing up at the restaurant on a busy lunchtime schedule, and I'd suddenly hear Max Volume's guitar riff chugging in as my record came on. Hey, that's my record again! I'd squeal. The whole shift would come to a halt until it was finished. regular Radio 1 airplay. One evening they played it on Radio 4's PM News Show. I never heard it, of course. In those days I only ever listened to pop music stations. Because of that particular news item, some high up at EMI Records had also heard it. The next thing you know, along with Chris and Stuart from Off Street Records, I'm sitting upstairs at EMI's Manchester Square HQ negotiating a one-off piss-poor 4% record and distribution deal. The record was hurriedly released on EMI's Liberty label. Now we were motoring. We sealed it with a lukewarm bottle of Chablis, which I'd found while nosing around in their broken fridge, when instead I should have been listening to what was being said. Bogs later, just along the corridor, I met Mincy, a cheerfully ebullient singer of the angelic upstarts. Do some f-ing work, you lazy bastards! <laughs> he yelled in broad Geordie as we passed back through the typing pool together. On the way back up to the meeting room, finding myself on the wrong staircase, I met a few glamorous looking new romantic types. Tablecloths over shoulders, leather trousers, and big 80s hair. They all had flutes of cold fizzy in their hands. I was informed that it was some kind of reception for Dexie's Midnight Runners. And then there's me, Chris and Stuart crammed upstairs in an office with a paper cup full of warm Chablis each and a song about the plight of our unemployed youth. Every expense spared then. Oh, monsieur, you're really spoiling us with your music bees. Hospitality. I 
was introduced to their PR person. I think he was called Brian. He was to be in charge of promoting Young Jobless. We immediately got off on the wrong foot. This record of yours, then, what's it all about, he asked. I looked at him, slightly nonplussed. Ah, I said, it's called Young Jobless. I pointed out the window into the drizzly London afternoon and said, you see that out there? He nodded. I said, well, that's what we call normality. And I've just written this song about young people who, because of various political and sociological circumstances, now can't get jobs. So, mm, basically, there are a lot of young, unemployed youngsters out there, just in case you didn't know. He looked at me crossly and replied, I was aware of it, actually. I was only joking. Young jobless. really. Always saying the wrong things to the wrong people at the wrong time. In early 1981, I was unversed in the ways of the media, what they're like, and what they may do if they want to take advantage of you. Bear in mind that I was a straight-from-central, casting British rock and roll wazic, who might have easily have fitted into the mockumentary band Spinal Tap. If I told them once, I told them a hundred times to put Spinal Tap first and Puppet Show last. I was chiefly interested in rock music and how I might make a living from it. I had only the fuzziest ideas of what was happening in the wider world outside. I had, however, one other disadvantage, which would take over three more decades for me to discover. Being slightly aspergic, I couldn't read people's faces. I didn't always know when people were taking the piss or when they were lying to me. I also didn't know when I'd said too much, said the wrong thing, or sometimes even what to say at all. I mostly hit it by drinking. Naturally, the media corpse made mincemeat out of me. I do not feel aggrieved about this. Not now, anyway. As I'm always saying, there are no victims, only volunteers. But I do kind of wish that back then there'd been someone at my side as a guide. Or maybe even a referee to blow a whistle and stop play when it became too cruel. Because my wisdom, such as it now exists, has been hard-earned and a long time coming.
a maxi but a goodie here on 20 Minutes Into the Future, where we discuss Steve and Martin and the particular strange intersection that existed between landlord and tenant? Or just good friends who happen to live in the same town as I understand it. Thanks for listening, and uh, until next time, be seeing you. We were wondering if you had any... um any stories about Martin back in the day? No, to me, no, to me, nudge, nudge. Not that I'm prepared to tell you, my dear. <laughs> Rats! Foiled again. He, he's lovely.